What's up, everyone? Welcome to Desolation Radio with Dan and Neith. Hey, uh, I was saying, I jumped in again. Sorry. Speed it up, like. Uh, this is, we're recording before Christmas, but this is probably going to go out after Christmas. So, we're going to go out Christmas Day. <laughs> we're not doing anything, are we? No. You're, you're, you, can ed- you can edit it all Christmas Day. But nonetheless, mm. uh, should I say Merry Christmas? Or, or I was going to say, should I act as if Christmas has been? We could do both and delete as applicable. So... Are you ready for okay? Are you ready for Christmas, Nath? Yeah. Are you? Yeah. Hey, Nath, how's your Christmas? I, I don't know. It hasn't yet. <laughs> Potentially <All right>. awful. <laughs> okay. So, Christmas slash New Year special, Desolation Radio, and we're delighted to be joined today by the one and only Rob Griffiths. Rob is the head of the Communist Party of Britain, and he's also a prolific author and activist. Uh, he authored the. The pamphlet "Socialism for the Welsh People." You know, co-authored that with Gareth Miles, and that was the one we reviewed in a two-part series, which went down extremely well. He's also written on Esso Davis. He's written a history of Aslev, the train drivers' union. He's written "Turning to London," his pamphlet about the the Labour Party and its attitude towards Wales, and also "Killing No Murder, South Wales, and the 1911 Railway Strike," which talks about the railway strike in Llanelli. All that and more. So, we're delighted to be joined also, by. Uh, oh, sorry. Um, we found out just now a retired boxing champion, world boxing champion. <laughs> not quite world, British and Irish. Bit, a good uh, bit of trivia. Universities, hospitals and colleges champion. Went around hitting uh, people was, in hospital. No, it was back in the 1970s and the only punch I've ever thrown since in anger uh, was, uh, was um, when I've had an altercation with a couple of fascists and racists, but that's about, that's about it. Oh, that's when was it. that? Oh, it was a few years ago, once in Oxford High Street and the other with somebody in a restaurant in Roth who was busy picking fights and so on and attacking mm. the waiters. And did you knock him out? Um, it, actually, I, th- I, I did, and if I could have reproduced that form in the ring, <laughs> I, I could have been a contender, I think. <laughs> That's what you need, isn't it? It's just like... The guy, the guy, the guy fascist, to pin so fascist uh, logos, yeah. whatever his thing. Um, so yeah, Rob, you know, the, the only Welsh-speaking, well, first well, Welsh... Fluent Welsh-speaking, uh, best Welsh head speaker. of uh, a British political party. So, as I said, we're really delighted to have you on. So, thanks so much for coming. My pleasure. Okay, so we're going to do our Wales this week's segment, and nothing much has happened. But what has happened, I was going to say, you know, fortuitously, is that the only thing that's happened is that David Ellis Thomas has come out and said that because he's now the Culture and Tourism Minister, and he's going to he's decided to market Wales. As a principality, he said that when he was sort of doing this uh, unveiling, sort of shindig with Prince Charles himself, which actually is contrary to the Welsh government's. Apparently, it's just like his own idea. It does it goes against the Welsh government's? Um, Do you think he was angling to get those uh, wedding tickets? <laughs> well, but they were. But I mean, so people have kicked off, and people are unhappy. Like Wales is a nation, not a principality. But but what was interesting is that David Thomas, of course wrote the foreword to the fantastic pamphlet Socialism for the Welsh People. And so, Rob, we just wanted to put you on the spot and ask what you made of this uh, this, pr- this, turn, <laughs> this turn towards the Principality. Well, I, I mean, I could say it's a case of, you know, of David becoming a Marxist by royal appointment. <laughs> um, but uh, actually, uh, I, I've met him quite recently and done one or two programmes with him. And of course, we're, we're, we've, we've known each other for many years. Uh, we're, we're, we're friends. Uh, but um, we did fall out politically, I think, from about the time that I referred to him in a publication as the Merionith Menshevik. 
and uh, <laughs> he seemed to take exception to that. It was a question of, I think, tactics over over the referendum uh, result in Wales and so on. So, no, it's disappointing, but to be honest, David has been on this uh, pro- uh, trajectory towards, you know, um, becoming very much a, a tame um, um, uh, pet uh, of the establishment. And um, it's a shame when I think back, you know, to to the fiery uh, left-wing uh, Marxist-inclined uh, MP as he was in the, uh, in the 1970s. Damning. <laughs> All right. Okay, so there we go. That's pretty much... That's th- Wales this week. <laughs> that's uh, Lord Davidell told. You didn't even know thought about being a Lord, Rob? Never th- <laughs> well, strangely enough, I'm, I feel... I, every, every year I'm let down when the, when the honours list is published. Yeah, no, it's, my a, name's it's a disgrace. Uh, I think the chances of me becoming a Lord are about the same as my chances of becoming a future president of the United States. I'll never say never. 60% then. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So last week we, we talked about um, the history of the Communist Party in Wales with Doug Jones. Um, and we realised when we were sort of talking to people on Twitter and things like that that we've not really sort of defined or explained what communism is. Mm. So, so who better to do that than Rob? So Rob, if you just, you know, you are the head of the Communist Party of Britain. So just tell us first, you know, what, what is communism? Well, first and foremost, I suppose communism is a set of ideas about how society could be run um, in the interests of the vast majority of people and in the interests of humanity generally. Uh, Of course, although Marx, Karl Marx, didn't invent the term communism, it was used um, before his time. In fact, uh, Robert Owen, the the, uh, in many ways, the founder of the inspiration of the cooperative movement from Newtown in Mid Wales. Uh, Robert Owen referred to himself as a communist. Um, And basically it means that society, everybody in society, uh, owns and controls um, the means of production and distribution and and exchange. Um, That the wealth that our society produces is is the wealth to be held in common ownership by the people as a whole. Uh, and of course this would represent a fundamental change from a capitalist society uh, where much of industry and commerce, financial sector, the manufacturing sector and so on, the whole economic basis of society uh, is owned by private individuals these days as shareholders in, uh, in, in, um, in giant corporations. Um, those are the economic forces that dominate capitalist society a class of people, a minority of people, who actually own and control the majority of the wealth. Um, A communist society would be fundamentally different. The first, uh, the lower phase of communist society, uh, Marx identified two stages, if you like, the lower stage um, of uh, communism. Uh, Engels and Lenin later said, well, let's, let's refer to that as a socialist society. Um, and we'll reserve the term communism, if you like, for the higher stage of communist society. So initially, what, what communists, and of course many others on the left want, is a socialist society, um, in, which the, um, in, in which the ownership and control of the economy in particular uh, is held in common, is owned by us all together, uh, working, the, working those means of production uh, cooperatively, and in which um, there's a much fairer distribution of wealth, and where ordinary people, together, collectively, control how our society runs and how it's developed. 
um, I don't know if I've been quite as doctrinally pure in, in the way that I've outlined that, but I think, you know, in many ways, it's, it's, um, it's humane and civilised common sense. Um, but of course, it, it would mean overthrowing very powerful vested interests in our society. So naturally, as they tend to own much of the mass media, or control much of the mass media, uh, of course, everything has always been done to paint socialism and communism as though they are um, tyranny, uh, they're, they're a form of uh, oppression and tyranny and so on. Um, but uh, I, I, you know, clearly, um, the view of, uh, of communists and socialists is that, in fact, this is the beginning of the end of exploitation and oppression. Um, and sooner or later, society will, be, will, will find it absolutely essential to move towards a socialist system because capitalism, with its gross inequalities, with its exploitation, with its tendencies to militarism and war and so on, Capitalism is not capable of solving the most fundamental problems of, of society, whether we're talking about feeding everybody, educating everybody, providing a decent, dignified life for everybody, a peaceful world, um, safeguarding our environment, our ecosystem and so on. Capitalism has proven over the last 150 years that it is not a system that's able to do this because it's founded on exploitation. That's fantastic, Robert. Going back to what you said about you know all things in common basically being controlled by the mass of people. I mean that's what the dictatorship of the proletariat is, right? I mean people think of, from what I understand, is when people hear that term dictatorship, the proletariat, they think dictatorship. But all it means is that working people own the means of production. Dictatorship is about who has the yeah. power in society, and, and that's all it is. And of course, when that term was used by Karl Marx in the 19th century, it didn't quite have the same connotations yeah. that it has now, because since then, you know, we've had the appalling um, fascist and military dictatorships that we've seen in the world, and so it's in a, in a sense is given dictatorship a bad name. What Marx meant by dictatorship of the proletariat was that working people and their families would have the power in society to decide their own future and the future of our society collectively. That's great. So what's the role of the Communist Party? I mean, what's the role of the Communist Party in general? But also, you know, what, what is your goal as you know, the Communist Party of Britain? Well, the Communist Party stands unapologetically um, for a socialist society, for a revolutionary change in the way in which our society is organised. Um, so that uh, um, our economy and uh, much else in our society is no longer controlled by a wealthy and powerful minority. Um, the Communist Party uh, is absolutely steadfast and uh, has always been consistent in standing by that objective and working for that objective. Now, of course, we recognise, particularly in Britain, where there's a long history of anti-communist propaganda and, and uh, prejudice and so on, um, we don't think for one moment that we're going to have a communist government in the near future or anything like it. Um, so our view is that we must try and build the broadest alliance possible to challenge um, uh, capitalist society um, and to move to the next stage in, in, in changing that society. Um, that will require a very broad alliance of different forces but at the core of it would have to be the organised labour movement, the organised 
working class movement. And so as a party, we seek to work with others on the left, we seek to work with all progressive forces in society, wherever people are willing uh, to challenge any aspect of capitalist society, the Communist Party does its best to provide solidarity, to provide ideas, to propose policies, um, to build uh, alliances and so on. And that is really the, 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 our work at the present time. So firstly, it's to uphold the banner of socialism uh, when others blow hot and cold and are inconsistent or have in some cases, of course, sold out completely. Uh, it's to uphold the banner of socialism, and it's to work as a party to mobilise, uh, unify and educate um, um, people on the widest scale possible. So what is the, I mean, what's the health at the moment of the Communist Party in Wales? Um, our party is, uh, is uh, small, and uh, it's never been that big in Wales, but... Um, you know, certainly uh, we're not the size that we were 30 or 40 years ago. A number of the key industries in which the Communist Party had uh, a base, um, uh, for example, um, obviously the mining industry, uh, the docks and so on, um, we've, we've lost uh, um, those industries. Uh, that undoubtedly was a blow to the, to the party. And of course, we've lost other parts of our industrial base. Um, but uh, we've also seen other sections of working people, um, public sector workers, teachers, local government workers and so on. We have seen those increasingly willing to take action, to defend jobs, to defend services on behalf of all of us and so on. And so these days the, the Communist Party's membership and influence tends to be uh, concentrated more in um, the public sector but we still have industrial workers of course and we still have uh, people who are unemployed we have young people we have um, we have uh, women whose uh, full-time uh, work is is caring for children or re uh, relatives and so on but it's not it's not primarily a question of numbers as far as we're concerned. It never has been. Um, if we were to be obsessed by numbers, we perhaps we might have given up in despair by now. It's a question of the ideas we put forward, the policies we put forward, um, the work that we do, do to initiate campaigns, to build campaigns, to bring people together and so on. And our party has been pretty active over the recent period, you know, with the, the anti-war movement, the movement against austerity, um, the whole uh, matter of the national question uh, in in uh, in Wales and so on. In all of these areas, the Communist Party has a long and honourable record. And even though our numbers are very small, we have many friends, many allies. Uh, some of them are a bit uh, wary about uh, being publicly identified <laughs> as such and so on. Um, but you know, I've. I've had, I've had in the past, I've had Welsh Government ministers come up and say, don't tell anybody, but I voted communist in the regional list uh, elections um, uh, for the National Assembly recently and thought your, you know, your party's broadcast was excellent and so on and so on. Can we, can we name them now? No, I, no, it was, no, because, I mean, uh, you know, one or two of the people I'm thinking of are still politically active. They're no longer Welsh Government ministers, so um, I wouldn't want to embarrass them. It was told to me in confidence. So it's not primarily about numbers. It's about influence. Sure. It's about um, alliances. And it's about building the movement, strengthening the movement, building the trade unions and so on. And um, 
we are as busy now as we've ever been. Your own, I want to talk about your own sort of political trajectory, if that's okay, Rob, because you know, when you wrote Socialism for the Welsh People, um, is it correct that you were in Plaid Cymru at the time? Or yeah, you- um, well, we were, we were on our way out of Plaid Cymru, I think, when the first edition came out, the Welsh language edition. Uh, I think we may still have been just about in Plaid at that time. So what was your role in Plaid at the time? Um, oh, well, I, I, through, the seven, through much of the 70s, I'd been employed as the full-time parliamentary research officer. Right, OK. Um, Gareth Miles, of course, the co-author, uh, Gareth had been a leading figure in the Welsh Language Society. Um, and together, uh, along with others, we were increasingly um, disillusioned, I think, with Plaid Cymru. Um, we didn't think it was proving itself to be a party that was capable of, of transforming itself into a genuine socialist party. I mean, there are good socialists in Plaid Cymru now, as there were then, and it undoubtedly is on social and economic questions, a left of centre party. Um, but that's not the same thing as being a thoroughgoing socialist party. Um, we wanted a thoroughgoing socialist party that took the national question seriously, as well as being internationalist. And um, Plaid was not clearly, by then it was becoming evident that Plaid wasn't going to become uh, a socialist party. But they adopted socialism formally in, was it 82 or 4? Well, I think, they, or? They, adopted the, they adopted the word... Um, <laughs> But, uh, you know, you can't, I, I don't think we could say that they, they, they turned themselves into a socialist party. I mean, even the word they had to qualify, they felt the need to qualify it, you know, decentralist socialist party and so on and so on, or co-op, community socialism, I think they started prattling on about it and so on. So it wasn't a, it wasn't a real socialist party that uh, seeks to base itself on the organised working class movement, which is the only movement that would have the power to challenge capitalism. Um, and and really, Plaid was still largely obsessed with attacking the Labour Party. Uh, I mean, there was plenty wrong with the Labour Party, um, but uh, it was a fairly negative approach. So we we did make attempts to form a, a, a political organization that we thought would be a socialist organization that took the national question very seriously um, that was the welsh socialist republican movement and and the pamphlet that we wrote in welsh and in english of course was designed to build support for the ideas around such a movement but again i think if we were to be objective um, uh, we um, and we did come to the conclusion after a few years that there were built-in mistakes and built-in problems with that as well. Um, and after thinking and discussing uh, the way forward, a number of us decided that um, the Communist Party uh, certainly was a socialist party, whatever criticisms and weaknesses uh, we we might identify. It was a, a, a socialist party, always had been consistently. Uh, and uncompromisingly so. It was an internationalist uh, party and part of an international movement, and it had a long history in Wales of taking the national question very seriously, which we believed was uh, was uh, very important. So a few of us did join the Communist Party, uh, I think about at least half a dozen of us. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, certainly for myself, and I think I can't speak for Gareth, but uh, I, as I met him at the... Welsh Communist Party Congress just a couple of weeks ago, I think I can safely say um, we've, we've never regretted it. Um, it was the right 
um, it was the right path for us because uh, it is a socialist party, it does have deep roots in the Labour movement um, and it continues to take the national question uh, very seriously. With, if you don't mind me going back to you know when you were in Plaid, were you you know a, so- a socialist who then joined Plaid, or were you you know did you join? I mean, how did you get into Plaid in the first place? If that makes well, sense. Well, I grew up. I grew up in uh, San Romney, you know, the big yeah. council estate on the uh, on the eastern side of Cardiff, and um, my father was a trade unionist, mm. um, uh, left of centre. My mother was a humanist um, of sort of liberal uh, and progressive views. So I was fortunate enough to grow up in a house, you know, where we were encouraged to read, encouraged to think, to discuss and so on. And the ideas that we heard around us um, were left of centre progressive ideas. So I think my, my first um, political affiliations were, to, were as a Labour supporter. I remember we had the... Um, the general election, it was probably 1966, uh, and uh, in Cardiff High School, because I passed my 11 plus, um, we had the mock elections, and adopting the Irish slogan of vote early, vote often, I recall voting Labour, Communist and Plaid Cymru in those mock elections, um, because actually, again, my, my father spoke a little Welsh, he came from a Welsh-speaking uh, background, my mother was actually um, uh, English, um, but uh, you know, even back then, I certainly regarded myself as being on the left. But I was also aware of um, of uh, a certain sort of Welsh identity. One last thing on Plaid, I guess, before we we move on. When you were in Plaid and you were sort of, um, you know, you said you were the research officer. Were you almost like, and Gareth kind of like leading this? leading the movement for socialism within Plaid? And if so, or was there like a, a mass basis for it within the party? And was there, was there tension within the party? Well, I joined Plaid in about 1973. And, and what tipped me over the edge into Plaid uh, was um, uh, the tremendous by-election campaign that Plaid fought in Merthyr Tydfil with Emrys Roberts as the candidate. And Emrys, of course, was a great public speaker, still is actually, um, very much on the left. And that made my mind up. And um, but later in the 70s, uh, as as a number of us became increasingly frustrated that Plaid wouldn't take a clear enough position on the left on a number of questions, we did begin to be in touch with each other. We had a trade union organisation in in Plaid Cymru, um, and then in the end we formed a sort of you know ginger group or pressure group within the party, Triban Koch, if mm-hmm. I remember collect, cor- correctly using the, lo- the logo, the symbol of the party and adding the red to it. Um, and, and so we did try, we made a concerted effort for a number of years to push the party further to the left. Perhaps we had no right to do so. I mean, it was a nationalist party and um, not surprisingly, there were nationalists in it who didn't regard socialism as being um, for them uh, something that they particularly wanted didn't to affiliate that, to. Sa- is it Sanders or Saunders Lewis? Saunders, isn't Saunders it? Lewis. Yeah, yeah, I always get mixed up with the the mm. um, fried chicken <laughs> mogul. Um, so he he actively hated socialism, didn't he? Uh, he was very anti-communist uh, and uh, yes, anti-socialist. Uh, I, I would say he he was um, he was deeply conservative in a philosophical sense and uh, and took very reactionary positions on a whole number of social and international 
questions. Now, to be fair, um, Gwynvor Evans's leadership did uh, did mean that Plaid Cymru moved away from the most reactionary aspects of that, but it still didn't turn itself into a thoroughgoing socialist party. And uh, in the end, I think our frustration was such that um, you know we decided, well, you know, we're, we're not going to be able to succeed here, and we'd be better off looking for alternative. Uh, ways forward. Okay, we're going to move on to you know hot topic uh, Brexit. So mm. the Communist Party has been almost you know the the, the sole or almost only at some stage the, the consistent voice on the left in the UK um, arguing for Brexit. For um, you've written your a pamphlet and it's called for People's Brexit mm-hmm. um, or the you know the left wing version of Brexit sometimes called uh, you may have heard it called Lexit. So Rob, what's the you know Communist Party's position on Brexit? Well, the Communist Party has been opposed to the European Union and its forerunners all the way back to the Treaty of Rome in 1957. As far as we were concerned, uh, the roots of the whole European project, as it's been built over the decades, the roots are in the Cold War. They're in the the, um, efforts of capitalism to rebuild itself in Germany and France uh, rather than go down the the socialist road. Um, the earliest attempts, of course, were to establish a European Defence Committee uh, community aimed against the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe as part of the, estab- the drive that established NATO uh, some six years before the Soviets retaliated with the Warsaw Pact, um, and the European political community that was attempted soon afterwards and only collapsed because the French communists and the Gaullists united against it. Um, the European Union was a, was, a, was a project about rebuilding capitalism from the beginning. And um, there's nothing about the Treaty of Rome that indicated any departure from that. If you remember, the fundamental principles of the Treaty of Rome were the free movement of capital, uh, goods and labour, so that um, multinational corporations could be built up on a Western European level to compete against the United States, to exploit workers more thoroughly, uh, and to exploit the third world more thoroughly. I don't see how that has changed fundamentally as far as the character of the European Union is concerned. In fact, as we saw recently with the punishment beatings handed out to the people of Greece and Ireland and Cyprus and Portugal and so on, um, the European Union is entirely a construction of big capital in Western Europe, and it's uh, it's been constructed on a basis that's fundamentally anti-democratic. Uh, it has this sham parliament that can't even initiate any legislation, and it has this overmighty European Commission, whose president pops up on our television every other day and tells democratically elected governments how they should and shouldn't be doing things and so on, and actually has the power in the fundamental treaties of the European Union to address the European Parliament at any time on demand. I mean, this is extraordinary. Can you imagine us giving the power to the top civil servant in Wales or the top civil servant in Britain to address the Welsh Assembly or the, or the Westminster Parliament whenever they think they need to do it? It's unthinkable, but the European Union is fundamentally undemocratic and all of its treaties and rules are there to serve the interests of big business. So the Communist Party has 
always understood mm. the real character of the European Union, which much of the left used to do at one time, until in despair it fed it fell for all the nonsense from Jacques Delors when he was president of the Commission. And there were so many in the Labour movement back in the 80s who said, oh, Thatcher's all-powerful, the Tories will win forever, we'll never ever see another Labour government, and so on. That was a very popular, uh, that was a very widespread position back then. Thatcher, we'll, sorry, Thatcher herself was a, a big proponent of the European Union. She, she was for most of the time, she yes. Very, very fetch and knitwear of all the European Union flags. Of so, course, of course. Yeah. So, uh, you know, unfortunately, out of despair and defeatism and demoralisation, um, a large section of the labour movement and a large section of the left came to believe that our only salvation would be through Jacques Delors and his social contract and all this uh, stuff that he was peddling back then. I mean, whatever happened to the social contract and the social chapter and the social Europe, all that's gone down the pan, of course. It was only ever window dressing anyway. So the Communist Party was never fooled by any of that. And it has to be said, even today, mind, there are still plenty on the left um, who understand the real character of the European Union. Um, according to the detailed analysis done by the Ashcroft Polling Organisation, a slight majority of people in Britain who regard themselves as being left-wing voted leave. Mm. And, um, uh, and many of those who voted remain... I think didn't do so because they're big fans of the European Union. I think they were just frightened about being accused of being in bed with, you know, Farage or the BMP or the right wing of the Tory party and so on. I mean, when you talk to a lot of these people privately, they'll say, yeah, I'm, I'm, no, I, I'm no fan of the European Union. I just didn't want to be associated with some of those who were campaigning against it. Or... It would be better to leave when we've got a Corbyn government rather than leave under a Tory government, which is an argument I respect. I don't, I don't agree with it, but I, I do respect it. So strategically then, Rob, I mean, you said the Communist Party has always wanted to leave the EU. You've always regarded it as a capitalist, you know, mm. super state essentially, which is interesting because it goes against this, as you said, the, the lot hand, of ha hands around the world yeah. narrative yeah. of the EU of being this Guardian sort of... Guardian readers. Yeah. Don't get me started on <laughs> Guardian readers. Um, but, you know, I thought free labour was just so we could all have nice holidays cheap within the Eurozone. <laughs> but there's also, as you said, a fundamental misunderstanding of the character of the EU as this almost a, a social project you know, designed to bring everyone together rather than, as you said, something financed by American capital and so on and so forth. But you just mentioned about the campaign and people's fears mm. about you know being associated with Farage and um, the right-wing elements of... I mean, because how do you square... I mean, that is, I think, a legitimate mm. question to be asked... Okay. Yes, we take the EU as a you know capitalist super state, or and, and so on. The fact is, the campaign in the main was run by right wingers. Um, so how did you know? I guess how do you approach it strategically and say right, we're going to get behind this? Or well, um, the the official campaigns on both sides were run by right wingers. <laughs> don't don't forget David yeah. Cameron, uh, Theresa May, Jeremy Hunt, Osborne, uh, and most of the cabinet today were campaigning for Remain. Uh, that was the official position of the majority of the Tory cabinet. It was the position of the Institute of Directors, it was the position of the CBI, Goldman Sachs, all the big banks, most of the City of London and most of big business. And it's a superficial um, assessment, I think, to say, you know, oh, well, uh, if Farage and Nick Griffin are against it and John Redwood, you know, then you know, we should be on the other side. 
No, the, for us the question is not about individual personalities or bogeymen or whatever. It's about you know where where the different class forces lie. Big business, the, the, the monopoly capitalist class in Britain, was very clear. They have always supported the European Union, and they still do, for very good reasons, because the European Union serves the interests of big business. They understand that perfectly. It's only some of the left who seem to be confused. And, of course, Guardian readers, <laughs> most of them are p permanently confused about just about everything. But, by the way, yeah, I, should, I should say, uh, I mean, since the referendum, I've spoken at um, public meetings in Germany, uh, France, uh, Portugal, and uh, there are many on the left across the European Union who uh, are intrigued and, and supportive of the position that's been taken in Britain. Most of the communist parties in Europe, for example, and most of the genuinely left-wing workers' parties are anti-EU. You'd never know that, in Britain because, of course, the right-wing anti-EU media don't want to give any publicity to the left, or certainly not to communist parties, uh, whatever their position on the European Union. And the, the sort of so-called left-of-centre or liberal um, uh, papers that are generally pro-EU don't want to give any coverage to anti-EU arguments uh, unless they can brand them as loony right-wing stuff. So, you know, it did mean that during the referendum campaign, uh, Lexit, the Left Leave campaign, uh, we got virtually no coverage in the papers, and yet we ran a very vigorous campaign. We had loads of invitations to address trade union and labour movement and community and anti-racist uh, organisations to take part in public debates, and we had a very nice reception in many places. Labour people in particular and trade unionists were saying this is the first time that we have heard a left-wing case against the EU. And of course, um, you know, that's mainly younger people saying that. Anybody over the age of 50 or 55 would, will remember Tony Benn putting the left-wing case against the EU, uh, which uh, was the majority position of all of the left. Jeremy Corbyn mm. has always yeah. taken, taken a left-wing anti-EU position. And quite frankly, I suspect that's still his position today. Well, that was but a he's a captive. That yeah, was a source a of some controversy, wasn't it? Like, how did he vote? We, we've had one of our, uh, our comrades on from the RCG before, and he, we were talking about Brexit, and it was conceived by the RCG as you know, a split within the ruling class in the UK. So how would you, but how would you characterise the elements like you know, Farage, UKIP, you know, what's their motivation for wanting um, to leave? There, Obviously, it's not the there same are as... Always, there, are always some, yeah, there are always some politicians. I mean, there are, there are those xenophobic um, elements who just don't like foreigners, um, although they're quite selective because many of them are big supporters of NATO. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, there's a xenophobic element, there's a nationalistic element. I think there's a genuinely patriotic element. There is a, there is a general democratic case for self-government and against being ruled by diktat you know, from the European Commission, the European Central Bank, and so on. Um, and I think even in Tory ranks, I think there are some Tory MPs for whom that is the main issue. But otherwise, really you're talking about mavericks, you know, the, the main forces of big business in Britain. With some exceptions, there's a few hedge funds, there's a few merchant bankers who are, are anti-EU. That's, that's what um, I was going to, yeah. And they, get, and they get a lot of publicity, of course, by the pro-EU media, because then they can use that to paint all of the anti-EU um, uh, movement 
as being, you know, hopelessly right-wing, xenophobic. You know, we're being told we're, we're lumped in with people who voted for Donald Trump. You know, we're likened to Adolf Hitler because we, because we support a referendum result, and so on and so on. I mean, it's been... And the Guardian, the hysteria in the Guardian is just unbelievable. Um, but, you know, look, yeah, there were some elements of capital that, that wanted to... Um, that wants to come out of the EU. But I, I think we've got to keep it in proportion. Like I say, the Institute of Directors, the CBI, the big city banks and so on, they were all very clear and they were massively in favour of staying in the EU. You, know, you spoke then, Rob, about you know, this idea of xenophobia and you know, maybe that was a driver behind some elements. Mm-hmm. I mean, surely you can't, I mean, you can't deny that doing the camp, you know, some of the campaigning you know, xenophobia was whipped up. Within, within the Lexit campaign, in your view, in the Communist Party, are you not worried about, let's say, the left who take power in the UK? Are you not worried about the situation, I guess, the balance of forces that will exist in the UK, let's say, in a couple of years? Do you think that certain things have been unleashed? Unfortunately, you know, we have had, you know, we have had this sort of obsessive coverage of immigration and uh, questions of nationality and health tourism and all the rest of it we've been having this for years now we've had an we've had a an anti-immigration bill or a nationality bill or a bill about asylum and sometimes all three every year for two decades you know racism in britain was not invented by the brexit referendum for goodness sake um, uh, and whilst undoubtedly people, there were many people who voted against the EU because they don't like what they perceive as the impact of unlimited immigration and so on, and in some cases that was tied to their concerns about wages being undermined and conditions being undermined and so on and so on, and their worry about, employ- full, about employment and housing. And, uh, and of course they were wrong, they were, they were misled by the forces of the right, but it's no good branding 17.4 million people in Britain as racist and so on. Don't forget, David. one of David Cameron's lines of argument was that he was going to go to Brussels, renegotiate our membership, in order to cut the benefits to migrant workers. It was Jeremy Hunt who went on and on about these foreigners coming over here and using our NHS resources. It was Theresa May who had this van going round London saying if you're not supposed to be here, get out before we throw you out. All these people campaigned for Remain. Not to mention all you know? the um, you know, uh, dead migrants at the EU's borders as well. Well, the EU is, is, is essentially a fortress Europe. Mm. Um, you know, we've, the EU, has, don't forget, has paid Turkey to be a dumping ground for refugees who can be rounded up inside the EU and dumped in Turkey. The EU is no friend of the third world. The EU slaps enormous tariffs on a lot of the products of uh, farmers and workers in the third world. The EU is about super exploiting the third world. The EU led the charge at the World Trade Organization and elsewhere to uh, flatten the barriers against European capital going into their countries, buying up their water industries and all the rest of it. The EU is a force for big business, not just within the EU, but across the world. And um, I'm afraid what we're seeing in some parts of the left is a complete failure to analyse things in class terms and to look at what interest the EU represents in class terms 
and to see it all in nice, mushy, liberally terms, and you know how horrible that that um, that Nigel Farage is, and so on. That's no basis on which. If we just took our positions on the basis of we don't want to be seen to be in bed with you know Nick Griffin, we wouldn't have opposed the Iraq War. Nick Griffin opposed the Iraq War. Um, uh, but of course, we were able to mobilise a huge mass movement that completely marginalised the Nick Griffins. At one time in Britain, as in France, the anti-EU movement was led by the left. And it's only when the left and the Labour movement abandoned the anti-EU movement, for the, for the reasons I mentioned earlier, that the far right have stepped in and said, oh, fantastic, you're now going to give the whole issue over to us. That's turned out to be an enormous mistake. The left has got to recapture that position on the EU. We've seen a number of unions coming out now against EU membership. Um, certainly there are still those forces in the Labour Party that understand the character of the EU, and that includes, in my assessment, Jeremy Corbyn, although he's the prisoner of the EU, pro-EU and pro-NATO fanatics in the Parliamentary Labour Party and the Shadow Cabinet. Um, but the struggle goes on, and uh, now we've got to we've got to make clear that if Britain either doesn't leave the EU, or if we leave the EU in name, but in reality we continue to be tied to the the rules and the institutions of the single European market, an incoming Labour government, a left-led Labour government, will not be permitted to pursue a lot of the policies in his general election manifesto. So again, that's part of the case that we're putting to our many good friends and allies in the Labour movement with whom we disagree on the EU question. We are putting it to them. Well, look, you and we want to see a left-led Labour government. Many of the policies that we want to see such a government pursuing, public ownership, state aid of industry, uh, the use of central bank bonds to raise funds for infrastructure, fundamental reform of VAT, an end to the super-exploitation of migrant labour. Many of these kind of policies are outlawed by EU treaties. Now, as well as taking on the huge vested interests that will do everything possible to undermine a Labour government, do we want to be taking on the EU at the same time? Wouldn't it be better to be outside the EU uh, trying to pursue these policies than having to take on the EU as well as the capitalist class here in Britain and internationally. So this is all part of the ongoing, you know, battle of ideas, if you like, within the Labour movement. So you basically, I mean, so to be clear, I guess, for our listeners, you believe in the goal of the Lexit campaign is essentially saying that, you know, it'll be a lot easier to institute a left-wing and socialist government once you're out of the EU. That is, uh, that is part of, that's certainly an important part of the case, but I think to come back to it, it is also about the fundamental character of the EU and the treaties and the provisions that those treaties impose upon member states. I mean, how many people realise, as a result of the Lisbon Treaty, that we were denied the promised referendum uh, on and so on? As a result of that, it is now official policy written into the protocols of the fundamental treaties of the European Union, that a European common uh, foreign and defence policy must be aligned with NATO. Now, our good friends in CND and so on, who campaign so enthusiastically for Remain, don't they realise? You know, now, Britain's a member of NATO, of course, but we have the option, 
to elect the kind of government and build the kind of mass movement to change that. In the European Union, that can't be done. It cannot be done. You know, you, the, the mechanisms don't exist to reform the treaties in that way, to change the policy in that way. So, again, why on earth would people on the left, would socialists, would peace campaigners, why on earth would they vote to remain in an organisation that has its alignment with NATO written into its fundamental constitution? It's crazy. And it just indicates to me again that I think it's a failure, a breakdown of analysis, and it's people mistaking superficial questions um, for the real class essence of things. We're going to talk about Wales a bit now in regards to the EU. I mean, there's been a lot of, well, it's panic um, for many on the left, I mean, the liberal left in Wales in particular, what's going to happen to Wales, you know, outside the EU? Obviously, you know, we've had all the objective one money, um, you know, two-thirds of the Welsh export market goes to the EU and things like that. So how, how, I mean, how do you think it'll impact on Wales? I mean, Well, again, I think we have to disentangle the facts from the propaganda. Two-thirds of the exports from Wales don't go to the EU at all. More than (laughs) two-thirds of the exports from Wales go to England. Britain is the most important market for Welsh products. If if, uh, the two-thirds could only apply to those um, exports from Wales that go to outside Britain. Oh, yeah. So, you know, uh, and again... This supposed, you know, um, bountiful um, uh, blessing that we get from the EU in structural funds and all the rest of it. All of this money is, at at the end of the day, this is money ultimately raised in Britain and recycled through Brussels, minus the £8 billion that Brussels actually takes out of Britain's contribution and so on. Uh, And once more, if you add up the amount, the net benefit that Wales supposedly gets as a result of being in in the EU, you're talking about 1%, less than 1% of the block grant that the Welsh Assembly gets from Westminster. Now, I don't want to decry the value of that sum of money, but let's keep a sense of proportion here. If we were to get a government in Westminster, you know, that genuinely recognises the need to support industry and agriculture in Wales, to invest in public services in Wales and so on, it would only have to raise the block grant by about 0.5% to make up for for, for what Wales supposedly uh, gets as a net benefit from EU membership, which, as I say, in the end is all British money recycled anyway. So I don't buy any of this kind of stuff, I'm afraid. And, of course, being outside the European Union does not mean losing access to the European market. Um, in fact, uh, obviously it'd be good if we can negotiate a low-tariff or no-tariff trading agreement with the EU, uh, although it appears to me it's the EU that objects most to that. Uh, they've got to be seen to be punishing us for daring to to leave their, their club and so on. Um, but if at the end of the day it means that tariffs have to be imposed, Given that Britain imports far more from the European Union than it exports to the European Union, the net beneficiaries of a tariff regime will be Britain, including Wales. So I don't accept that. And let me give you one concrete example um, of where membership of the EU has actually inhibited us us from doing what is necessary in Wales. We've had this big crisis in the Welsh steel industry. It certainly hasn't gone away. And the cry was 
that it's Chinese imports, steel imports, that are doing such damage to the steel industry across Britain, including uh, in Wales. Britain imports seven times more steel from the rest of the European Union than it does from China. So if steel imports are a major factor in the crisis we've been facing, well, those, most of those imports are European Union imports. And can we do anything about them? Absolutely not. That would be to fundamentally breach one of the founding principles of the European Union. So if we wanted to be in the position, which is where the Communist Party thinks we should be, of protecting the steel industry through measures of public ownership, through measures of state aid, through infrastructure or investment bonds issued through a central bank and so on, through limited, uh, through limitations on steel imports, whether from the European Union or any, anywhere else, if we wanted to carry out any of those necessary policies, we will not be able to do it for as long as we're inside the EU. Yes, that's fascinating, Rob. Thanks. So there's a, a large body of thought on the left that analyses the EU. It basically says that the smaller countries like Wales are essentially set up to fail within the EU. Um, is that something you buy well, into? Well, uh, uh, certainly um, the, the, the showpiece... Uh, regional funds and social funds and all the rest of it, they don't begin to offset the centralising forces, economic forces, that the European Union unleashes and supports. If you think about how many workplaces have closed in Wales, how many factories have closed or have, uh, you know, drastically reduced their operations, so that they can shift production to elsewhere in the European Union, so that they can export capital and machinery to elsewhere in the European Union and produce there. Now, all of that is protected by the EU. It's supported by the EU. We have lost, um, we have lost production, we have lost jobs, we've lost investment. Uh, at one time, a lot of it was going to Spain, uh, and the Mediterra- Mediterranean area, but in recent years it's been going to Eastern Europe. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm all for you know the peoples of Spain and Eastern Europe and so on developing their economies and benefiting and so on, but this is the, this is the capitalist jungle we're talking about here, that the European Union essentially has been set up to protect and to promote. And the fact that they throw us a few crumbs in regional and social policy doesn't begin to offset the damage that the free movement of capital has actually done uh, to the Welsh economy. And let me just give you one other concrete example. In the past, one of the most effective regional uh, policies that we had to encourage development in Wales and and other depressed uh, nations and regions of Britain uh, was the policy of industrial development certificates and office development permits. And these basically said, if you want to expand uh, your your business and so on, you will not be allowed to do it in some regions. You will be given benefits to do it in other regions. And that was one of the most effective ways of beginning to rebuild at least some kind of manufacturing base in Wales after losing coal and then later on steel. Now, that very policy, and the same thing was done to encourage um, commercial development outside London and outside some of the major centres and to divert it into Wales and Scotland and the north of England and so on. Those policies are expressly forbidden by membership of the European Union. So if ever we had a Labour government in London, 
uh, or a government with the powers to do it in Cardiff, which we should have, if ever we wanted to reintroduce some version of the Industrial Development Certificate and Office Development Permit policies, you cannot do it inside the European Union because it's interfering with the right of capital, the right of big business to go where it wants, when it wants, and almost on any terms it wants. And um, again, that's a, how any socialist, or for that matter, how anybody who genuinely wants to see our economy rebuilt and Wales catch up, not just with the rest of Britain, but of course, but with you know uh, large parts of Western Europe, how anybody who wants that can square that with remaining in the free market capitalist jungle of the European Union utterly defeats me, quite honestly. A lot of it is about free movement of people and things like that. What is the? I know I said we were, we were going to move past Brexit, but what's the Communist Party's position on... Because free movement of people, I guess, in the way the middle class people understand it is in terms of holidays... That's what people are freaking out about passports. It's like, I'm not going to be able to move around and work in the EU. But in terms of, like, migration... <laughs> but, yeah, but in terms... You know, so there's, it's, it's almost... You know, there's these weird uh, corollaries of membership on it that have, have sort of been, you know, boons to middle-class lifestyles in some ways. But when we're looking at, I guess, free movement of people, it's about, you know, free movement of labour around the EU. So what's the Communist Party's well, view on, again, on that? I, I think we should be beware the, the smoke and mirrors and so on. The fact is that, you know, as working people were winning a slightly bigger share of the wealth they produced because of the growth of trade unions, because of some of the policies of past Labour governments, we were getting to the position in the 1960s where more and more working class people could actually, for the first time, consider travelling abroad for holidays, going to the Mediterranean for a bit of sun and so on and so on. That didn't come about because we joined the European Union. It came about... It started to happen before we joined the European Union, and it increasingly happened regardless of the European Union. And the idea that after leaving the EU, somehow you won't be able to go and travel and go on holiday and tour and go and live in a whole number of European countries is just... I mean, this is just nonsensical scaremongering, quite honestly. Um, The thing about the free movement of people... The Treaty of Rome, by the way, was much more honest back in 1957. It made clear the real interest of the forces behind the European Union is the free movement of labour. Yeah. So that they can move workers across a map of Europe and use them to undercut pay and conditions and trade union agreements in different countries and bring down wages and all the rest of it. That's really what the European Union free movement um, stipulations are all about. And our response to that is that we're not in favour of the, the, again, we're not in favour of the capitalist market in labour. We believe it should be regulated. We believe all workers should be covered by properly negotiated collective agreements. And where that can't be done, by national uh, um, and regional legislation. Um, So there's no reason why we can't move to a position in Britain where, we, of course, we will continue to have people coming here to live and work and all the rest of it. Except that this time, we might be able to have more people from outside Fortress Europe, and we might be able to give families and people in the third world at least equal status with those of the European Union. So uh, the answer to free movement of labour is not to stop people travelling and going on holidays and settling down, retiring in other countries and so on. We'll be able to negotiate all those kinds of policies with the European Union, I'm quite sure. 
they existed to some extent before we joined the EU, they will continue after we join the EU. The question is that we've got to put an end to this completely unregulated labour market dominated by multinational corporations. Last week, um, we, we, we spoke briefly, it's a quite a niche topic, but I was into it with, with Doug, about, um, I guess, the Communist Party's evolving relationship to the, the Labour Party and the Labour mm. movement in the UK. I mean, we talked about class versus class, you know, the policy the Communists had back in the 20s of sort of opposing the Labour Party in the UK. I've noticed, particularly under, you know, the Communist Party has almost been a critical friend of the Labour Party. Under Jeremy Corbyn's leadership, I've noticed it becoming you know, more and more friendly, I guess, for obvious reasons. How would you characterise the Communist Party's current relationship with, you know, the Labour Party under Jeremy Corbyn? We've, um, I mean, all of our programmes since the 1930s, all of the Communist Party's programmes, and today it's Britain's Road to Socialism, um, our programmes envisage, you know, uh, um, an essential, uh, practical first step in Britain and, and Wales taking the, a road to socialism would be a, a mass expression of people's desire for change. And in electoral terms, um, there's really no realistic alternative to that being expressed through support for the Labour Party in elections and the election of a Labour government. In particular, the election of a Labour government committed to real change. So it's not, you know, that's not something we think, you know, it's not something we believe in because we love the Labour Party. There's, there's been a lot wrong with the Labour Party over the, over the decades, but it's been realistic. Given that we will not take any significant steps towards socialism in Wales or Britain unless the mass of people want us to take those steps. Well, the way traditionally in which that desire is expressed must include at the, at the ballot box. I don't think people would accept anything less. And that could only mean the election of a Labour government. Hopefully it would mean the election of other left-wing MPs, the election of even a communist MP or two, particularly if we had a more representative electoral system and so on. So for us, it's not a matter of, you know, um, of, of being fans of the Labour Party uh, or, or anything like that. It's a, it's a practical, concrete, uh, realistic uh, assessment. Now, and therefore, We've always said a Labour victory is better than a Tory victory at a general election because it will raise morale, it'll raise people's expectations, it'll raise people's demands perhaps, although the work still needs to be done. Um, as far as Jeremy Corbyn is concerned, well, the reality is Jeremy Corbyn has a long and honourable record as a socialist MP. In fact, it was only about, it was about, three, or four, only about three or four years ago um, at one of our uh, annual communist university type events in London, I actually did an interview with Jeremy Corbyn. We had a discussion, in effect, about the role of a socialist MP in Parliament. Not just a Labour MP, but a socialist MP in Parliament. Now, we, we, we haven't broadcast that interview, even though it was all taped, and it was shown for a brief time on one or two of our websites, he, he but it as like we're, not going, we're not going to embarrass him. I mean, the right-wing <laughs> press would leap Slow on him, as they've done about his You've got past. You've a bidding war between the Sun and the Telegraph. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> but the video is, we have the video. I absolutely would do that. We have the video. Um, so, no, he has a long record, honourable record as a socialist, and uh, we have no reason to believe that Jeremy 
has forsaken um, those uh, principles at all. In fact, I was in London um, on Wednesday evening and I was told by the editor of the Morning Star that when they had their staff social the previous week, uh, who should turn up completely unannounced? Uh, no, mi- <laughs> no, no minders, uh, no staff of any kind, Jeremy Corbyn, because he appreciates the role of the Morning Star as a daily socialist paper, um, politically aligned with the Communist Party, but it's not the Communist Party's paper, and it's supported by many trade unions. Jeremy turned up, made a little speech, praised the role of the paper, which he used to contribute to very regularly, and still writes for occasionally. Now, to me, that speaks volumes about the, the modesty of the man, anyway, um, and about his loyalty to basic principles and so on. Now, the problem is, of course, that um, the number of socialist MPs in the Parliamentary Labour Party is still far too small. And uh, that means that um, I think a whole number of policies that Labour could project that would be popular as well are at the moment being held back uh, and that creates some difficulties. But, you know, certainly the election, of a, the election of a Labour government led by Jeremy Corbyn could mark the beginning of the long struggle for socialist change in Britain. That's our assessment. Do you think, I mean, going high and harking back to the debate in the 60s and 70s with like, you know, Miliband and Coates and Savile and mm-hmm. things like that, there is obviously you know, something I've always bought into as, a, I guess, a cynic about the parliamentary you know, the parliamentary route to socialism. What do you think about that? As you said, this this idea of the long struggle that, and I think a, a lot of people on the in the Labour Party who do support Corbyn need to be made aware of this, a sharper sense that this is the, if he does get in, that's the start. Mm. That's the well, start of that, an extremely long struggle. That's part of it. And the other thing I think that has to be borne in mind is that the, the electoral and parliamentary struggle um, although it's an essential component of the wider political class struggle for socialism in Britain, uh, it is not the whole of the struggle by any means at all. In fact, ultimately what will be decisive will be the balance of forces in society more widely, including in workplaces, including out on the streets, in local communities and so on. It's actually the struggle outside Parliament that is uh, that would prove to be the decisive force, but it would find its it would have to find its reflection uh, inside Parliament as well. Um, but it's only extra parliamentary struggle. Let's not forget it's only extra parliamentary struggle that has brought Jeremy Corbyn to the leadership of the Labour Party. It's only because we had the mass anti-war movement, we had the mass campaigning and strikes and so on against austerity. Um, uh, the the initiatives taken by the People's Assembly and other organisations. This is what inspired hundreds of thousands of people to register as Labour Party members or supporters and vote for that bloke with the beard who always seemed to be there supporting them on the platform, on the picket line. You know, that's why people responded to Jeremy Corbyn's candidature. Uh, and in, in most cases, for the very first time, uh, joined a political party or registered as a supporter of the political party. It's because Jeremy Corbyn was part of the extra-parliamentary struggle, which, to his eternal credit, he reflected inside Parliament. But it was because of his role in the extra-parliamentary struggle. And the fact that all those different campaigns 
brought hundreds of thousands of people, millions actually, into political and trade union action. That's what created the basis for Jeremy Corbyn's stunning victories in the Labour Party leadership elections. And that should never be forgotten. I think if the left and the Labour movement begins to pull back from extra-parliamentary action and says, well, now that we've got you know, a good Labour Party leader and, we've got, and we can get some more left-wing Labour MPs, then we can, we can put Britain on the road to socialism, I'm afraid they will be easily knocked off that road by the powerful forces that, that will fight to the death to prevent socialist revolution in Britain. And that's why maintaining that strength and building up that strength outside Parliament in the trade unions, in workplaces, in local communities, that is going to be essential if we're going to win that Labour government and if that Labour government's going to be in a position to really bring about some changes. We'll go on to the national question now, if that's okay. I mean, we know that you, as you said, you've got a strong interest in the national question in Wales. As you've, What's the Communist Party's um, position on you know, Welsh devolution? The settlement that's been won piecemeal and conceded piecemeal and so on is clearly unstable. Um, I mean, there's been some stability over the last uh, few years, but the inadequacies of it, I think, are becoming clearer. Um, there's a whole number of matters of financial policy and economic policy and so on where the powers of the Assembly are either not clear um, or they're not sufficient. Uh, and uh, our view is that you know we should we need to put an end to this piecemeal approach to devolution. We need a settlement that is credible, that can last, and that serves the interests of working class people in Wales. And our assessment as a communist party is that this means a federal system. Um, that that also would be uh, the best position for the people of Scotland and for the people of England who also may want to find ways to express their own uh, uh, nationality and their own interests and to bring power a little closer to them as well. So we're for a federal Britain um, uh, with equal status between the three nations of Britain, uh, with a Welsh Assembly having the economic powers and the financial resources to intervene decisively in in uh, the economy and in the community and in public services. Um, that means, amongst other things, a federalism that also involves a huge redistribution of wealth from the, from the, the fantastically wealthy tax-dodging capitalist class based largely around the city of London and the southeast of England. We need that wealth transferred to the mass of ordinary people across Britain, including in London and the southeast, by the way, um, but also to Wales and Scotland, where we have generated so much of that wealth in the past but seen so little of it. In fact, that's at the core of our disagreement with Plaid Cymru and separation and the SNP and separation in Scotland. Why should we walk away from all that wealth that workers in Wales through the generations have actually created? We should join with workers across Britain to fight for that wealth to be redistributed uh, from the capitalist class to the working class. Don't have a problem with the idea of a Welsh Republic, a Cymru, sitting in the United Nations in between a communist president of Cyprus, as we had recently, and a communist president of Cuba. I can't think of a nicer place to be, you know, emotionally speaking. But the reality is that in, in Wales we need that radical redistribution of wealth. 
And uh, that is only going to come about by united working class action and united labour movement action, as well as the maximum devolution to give us the powers in order to really begin to change things fundamentally here in Wales. Do you have any? I mean, do you have any sympathy though with, like, for example, the movement for Scottish independence? Because you know, surely most of that is based on the fact that you know, this legitimate and, if you, you know, historically well-grounded idea that the British state isn't reformable. Well, well, actually, it may be reformable, and it has reformed itself painfully slowly and so on, um, but it has proved itself reformable, and how much more reformable could it be if we had a united left-led Labour movement um, rooted in extra-parliamentary action, but also with a government that reflected some of that inside Parliament? So, um, and I also have to say, you know, Maximum powers to Wales and Scotland, absolutely. Um, but Scotland, you can't really look at Scottish history in recent years and say Scotland's an oppressed nation. It's not an oppressed nation. And of course, if the people of Scotland vote for independence, they absolutely must have it uh, without any bogus obstacles put in the way and so on. Um, but uh, similarly, although I think Wales and Scotland have been disadvantaged and, and have been treated quite appallingly at various points, even in recent history. I don't think we can say we're on a par, you know, with a third world country that's being ruthlessly exploited by the major imperialist countries. I don't think we're in that position. We're not fighting a war of national liberation in Wales, and neither are they doing that in Scotland. So we have to find a way that ensures we have our national rights and our democratic rights whilst maintaining the unity of the labour movement, the unity of working class people, which we have built up in Britain over 150 and 200 years. You know, that's not a myth. Solidarity between working people in action actually has taken place on many, many occasions. And we do have a united labour movement. And I think before we were to risk that, before we were to throw any of that away, I think we would have to be absolutely clear that this is, you know, the only possible way forward. And I don't think it is the only possible way forward. Do you not see, though, I mean, well, not, not see, though, but do you mean one of the most compelling arguments I've heard from you for Scottish independence was the idea that, you know, you don't need the British state to have unity between the working class in Scotland and England and Wales. You know, it can be achieved without <coughs> national borders. It can be achieved without... Well, I th I'm afraid the reality is that if we were to split um, um, Britain into three completely independent states, then I'm afraid the result would be, you know, that um, the political struggle and even the class struggle would turn in on itself and would be conducted in three separate ways. And uh, I think the casualty would be the, the unity that we've managed to build up across the working class movement in those three different countries. I think that would be an inevitable result and it would weaken us all. Don't forget, the big companies that would still be operating in Wales and Scotland, they won't be splitting themselves up. They will still act as a united force and they will utilise that position to play off one against the other and so on. Um, so I'd have to be convinced. I mean, there may be circumstances where Welsh separation and Scottish separation would be absolutely necessary and may even assist the political class struggle. But I don't think that, I mean, that would be, for example, if we were facing fascism. Hmm. But I don't think that's the position we're in at all at the moment. And I think we would, 
we would almost certainly lose the unity of the labour movement. And for what? You know, bearing in mind, don't forget, that our, our loyal nationalist parties in Wales and Scotland both want to remain under the, under the uh, domination of the Bank of England when it comes to currency, both want to stay in the European Union to be dominated by the European Commission and the European Central Bank, uh, both want to stay in NATO and have their military and therefore their foreign policy dictated, both want to retain the English monarchy. I mean, quite frankly, this isn't nationalism, actually. I, I'd have more respect for people who are consistent Welsh nationalists or Welsh Republicans. I'd have a lot more respect for that. But what we've got is some sort of tame, toy-town uh, variety of it that wants Wales to be independent, but only in name. Mm. The reality is we would still be ruled by powerful forces in London, Brussels, Frankfurt and Washington, D.C., uh, and you'd have to say, is it worth throwing away the unity of the Labour movement for a bogus independence? I don't think it is. How would you characterise the performance of the, well, not the Assembly, but the, I guess the Welsh Labour government since since the evolution? It's, it's done some good things. It's taken some good initiatives. Um, but I think there's a certain degree of complacency, even arrogance, um, we're not seeing such new ideas coming forward. We're seeing a lot of cliches being peddled and so on. <clears throat> and some of them are to cover up the fact that the Welsh Assembly still doesn't have the kind of powers that it really needs to have. I mean, they talk about you know various versions of a Welsh economic plan and so on. Absolutely essential that we need economic planning in Wales. But the reality is that our Assembly doesn't have the powers. Uh, to carry out many of the kind of policies that would be necessary uh, to make such a plan work. And by the way, we probably never would be for as long as we remain in the European Union. So I think there's a fair bit of bluster and a fair bit of complacency now. And um, uh, that, that may end up damaging Labour. Although, I have to, once, once again, I make the point, when, when we ended up with a stalemate after the Assembly elections a few years ago, and it was a question of Plaid Cymru almost holding the balance, and there were those implied that wanted a, coal, a rainbow coalition with the Tories and the Lib Dems, and there were others who wanted a coalition with Labour. And then there were people in the Labour Party, including some good friends of ours, who wanted nothing to do with Plaid Cymru because they were wicked nationalists and so on. The Communist Party was very clear. I like to think we had a little bit of influence with our friends in Plaid Cymru and our friends in the Labour Party. We said the best solution was a Labour-Plaid coalition. That's what we ended up with, and I think probably that was the most successful period we've had yet of government in the Assembly. So perhaps Plaid ought to drop the pretense of being a nationalist party and uh, you know say what it is. It's a radical devolutionist party. It needs to drop this pro-EU nonsense. Um, and, uh, you know, I think it would be possible to create a good, radical, left-of-centre government in Wales. But it would require some changes in Plaid and in the Labour Party. That's interesting you say that, Rob, because, I mean, at the moment, obviously you've got Corbyn is in charge of you know, the mm. part, Labour Party in England. Richard Lennon has just taken power of the Scottish Labour Party, whereas Wales, the Welsh Labour Party, is you know, ruled by Carwyn Jones, who... I don't think could possibly be described as a left winger. I don't think anyone around 
around Carwin Jones or even in the world, you know, senior positions in the Welsh government could really be described as left-wing. And as you said, a lot of their policies are, let's say, very, very moderate indeed. We know that one member, one vote has just been blocked. Um, and it's almost like Welsh Labour because, you know, back in the early days of the Assembly, they could position themselves quite easily to the left of Blair, you know, in London. At the moment, they've just it's almost gone... It's gone the other way in Welsh they've been Labour. Overtaken. They're, they're almost like a right-wing yes. enclave they, within they move the... from being... Uh, a little to the left of Labour in England and Scotland, which is where a lot of Labour members and a lot of Labour voters wanted it to be. And of course, they've now, they've now been overtaken in England. They're, they're in danger of being overtaken in Scotland. Uh, and as you say, I mean, there's a danger that Welsh Labour could become a bit of a, a bastion of reaction in the Labour Party. And that would be, I mean, that would be little short of tragic, given Wales's, you know, tremendous left-wing and radical history, that this is where the Welsh Labour Party ends up. Now, there's lots of good people in the Welsh Labour Party. Uh, I've got confidence that, you know, they will fight, uh, and uh, there's every prospect that they could win. I mean, after all, it was only a few years ago we had one appalling right-wing leader of the Scottish Labour Party after another. It did look as if, you know, that was never going to change. Now the position has been completely reversed, uh, in a matter of uh, in a matter of months, as has been the case in the Labour Party at British level, so I don't think we should we we should we should never say never. Um, you know the the the, the battle, these battles can be won, and the Labour Party in Wales can change for the better, just as there's every sign of it doing uh, in uh, in the rest of Britain. Rob Griffiths, thanks so much, Rob. As as is our tradition, and we hope you come on. We really hope you come on again to discuss other topics. Um, would you? Is there anyone you'd like to give a shout out to? A shout out, what for good or bad? Any yeah, reason? yeah. So the new, tra- you can you can do both now. You can basically say you know a shout out is good, and then you can also start a conflict with someone if you desire. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, I I I'm involved in plenty of conflicts already. <laughs> I don't I don't need any more tonight. Um, but uh, I just I'm looking forward to next year. I think it's going to be a momentous year. We need to try and get the best kind of exit from the EU that's in the interests of working class people. We need to maintain and increase the level of campaigning out in communities and workplaces and in the streets and so on. And we've got to bring down this government before it does any more damage to the social fabric of our society and get a left-led Labour government that we then need to put the maximum pressure on. So I think we've seen how things can change very quickly, even though we were all told it was impossible. Jeremy Corbyn, leader of the Labour Party, never happened. Britain leave the EU, never happened. Well, let's see, they both happened and more has happened. So I'm just looking forward to 2018 and uh, best wishes to anybody out there who, who knows me. Comprehensive, I like it. Uh, my shout is good to Kieran Smith, who uh, came to the desolation party uh one of the two and and sam as well who did uh, sam coats and also shout out to our uh, graphic designer all who's just absolutely killing it with everything yeah i'm sorry for calling the christmas party and not to up it's uh, embarrassing it's very mysterious of you wasn't it <laughs> yeah um thanks yeah thanks to mark for letting us use his uh, his studios on the bay which is fantastic Thanks, my f- shout out to my family, love you all, and shout out to my friends upstate doing bids over Christmas. Um, shout out to Santa as well. Yeah. The big, the big boy in red, the original <laughs> communist. Um, <laughs> okay, right. We hope you have a great Christmas and New Year, um, and we'll see you again soon. All right, bye-bye. Bye. So, man, what do you think? 
Dragon is up to now. Man. Panel. I'm your father. What are you doing here, Dad? I just want to say I love you, son. Dad, this is a bad time for us to reunite. If you are indeed my father, why would you step out now during the biggest interview of my life? That means you don't care about me as a son. No, I do. I really do care. You haven't been in my life at all. And I'm interviewing Nick Cannon, former R. Kelly collaborator, and stagehands let you walk in here with your dick out. Can I have a hug? F*** you, Dad. Yeah.